Thanks for uh, those of you who are in the room and for those of us online. Man, what a privilege uh, to be here and to open God's word with you this morning. One of the things that I love about late in the summer is Little League Baseball. You thought I was going to say college football. Little League Baseball. It holds a really special place in my heart. Uh, When I was 11 and 12, our little rec league all-star team from Alabaster got to go out to Kansas and participate in the USSA World Series. And we had pretty good success. Uh, We were just an all-star team, rec league, but we went out and we finished 10th out of 108 teams our first year. And we went out again when we were 12 and we finished second out of 74. We got beat in the championship game twice and it's fine, we won't talk about it. It's fun though to tune in to experience Little League Baseball and while we didn't have all of the fanfare, we didn't have all of the TV coverage that Little League does, I love to watch the kids come up and introduce themselves, tell us who they are and tell us their favorite player. And then if you watch them closely throughout the rest of the game, the way that they hold the bat, when they get on base, um, what they do, you can see them emulating their favorite player. And growing up on on the field, my dad was always telling me to do the same thing, pick a professional player and do what they do. And I say all of that just to say this, we are in the middle of a three-week series on prayer, and we've been looking at this little section of James chapter 5, and in it, James has been encouraging his hearers to pray in all circumstances. If you're sick, or if you're rejoicing, or if you're suffering, then we should pray. And today, we come to the final two and a half verses in James chapter 5. And what James is going to do for us is he's going to point us back to an Old Testament prophet named Elijah. And he's going to say, look at Elijah and try to emulate him. Here's what James says in James chapter 5, starting in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James is telling us, back in the day, Elijah prayed. And he prayed fervently, and his prayers were powerful and effective. And James's point that he's trying to make is simple. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah prayed, and his prayer was powerful, and it was effective. It didn't rain for three years and six months. And the point that James is is telling us is simple. Elijah was a man. He was a person just like you and just like me. And if his prayers can be powerful and effective, then our prayers can be powerful and effective too. That's it. That's the point. That's what James wants us to get. I can stop the sermon here, but I'm not going to. Because the challenge of this passage in James for us is that it's the the end of his argument, and he just introduces Elijah to us, and he just passes right along. 
James expected his original audience to understand the Elijah story. And for us, I don't know about for you, but before I started thinking about this sermon, I hadn't thought about or read the Elijah story in a long time. Maybe, maybe we, haven't even, we, we can't even call it back to mind what exactly is going on here with Elijah. And so that's what I want to do. I actually think James's uh, passage here is an invitation to us to explore, to reflect, to think about Elijah. And the question that, that James wants us to, to hear and the question that I want us to know is what happens when we pray? What happens when we pray? So I say we take James up on his invitation. I say we go back. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 17. If you're using the Pew Bible, that is page 299. 299. I would encourage you, pick that up and go with me. Let's turn back to 1 Kings 17 and let's see what exactly James is trying to show us from the story of Elijah. There are important stories. Uh, it's easy, they're easily lost or forgotten. James, uh, Elijah only occupies about six chapters over, the, over first and second kings. They're, they're important, but they're easily forgotten. They're easily missed. So I wanna look at three moments in Elijah's life that teach us something about what happens when we pray. My preaching professor at Beeson Divinity, uh, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., says that for every New Testament doctrine, there's an Old Testament picture. So the doctrine that we're talking about this morning is prayer, but the picture is the life of Elijah. So let's look together at Elijah's life. First Kings chapter 17, starting in verse one, look what it says. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now we have to pause here and understand where we are. All of this is happening after the, the famous king's Saul and David and Solomon. This is happening after the kingdom of Israel has divided into two. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom and there are different kings for each kingdom. Ahab is the seventh king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And if you look up just a couple of verses in chapter 16, verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more evil than all who were before him. So things have gone completely off the rails. All of the kings of Israel so far have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He, is, uh, he has married a foreign princess named Jezebel for political gain. He worships the storm god Baal and has actually built a temple for him. He has basically forsaken the God of Israel and has ushered in state-sponsored idolatry. And into this scenario, Elijah bursts right onto the scene, very unexpectedly. He kind of comes out of nowhere, but he's right on cue. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 11, the Lord has already told the people of Israel, hey, be careful, take heart, take care, lest you turn away and worship other gods. 
Because when you do, the anger of the Lord is going to be kindled against you, and he is going to shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit. So Israel has officially turned aside. They're worshiping other gods, and Elijah shows up with the word of God on his mouth and an apparent prayer for God to be faithful to his word. And I actually think that's instructive for us when it comes to how we pray. We take God's word and we pray in accord with what God has already said, what God has already promised to do. So the first thing here that we learn from Elijah is this. When we pray, sometimes God changes our circumstances. When we pray, sometimes God changes our circumstances. Let's keep reading to see why this is the case. Look with me in chapter 17, verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is, east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So here's what we see. Sometimes God changes our circumstances. In the middle of this drought, God providentially relocates Elijah and adjusts his circumstances to provide bread and meat and water. I actually think this is a gentle reminder to Elijah in the midst of idolatry everywhere that the Lord saw him. The Lord was with him. The Lord cared for him. And I think sometimes when we pray, when we pray for a particular circumstance in our life, the Lord can change it just, just as a gentle reminder that he sees us, that we're not alone, that we're not forgotten, that he, he does really care for us. And I also think that the opposite can be true. Look in uh, chapter 18, over one chapter, verses one and two. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, three years of drought, saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria. So we get two situations here. While the Lord's providentially caring for Elijah, providing bread and meat and water, the Lord has also changed Ahab's circumstances such that the famine is very severe in Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the kingdom of Israel. The Lord had removed the prophet who was speaking the word of God to the people. He is out in the wilderness. He's away. And God has, in essence, gone silent. And I believe that the Lord is changing Ahab's circumstances here because he's trying to get his attention. He's trying to, as well as the attention of all the people of Israel, he's trying to show them 
that even though they worship Baal, who is the storm god, who they associate with rain and storms, and the rain produces uh, crops which provides life and sustenance for the people, the Lord's trying to show Ahab that Baal is, is not a god. He has no power, he has no control, he has no authority over the weather. Only the God of Israel has authority over creation. And I think this is why the Lord sends Elijah back to show himself to Ahab. He sends him back to see if God had gotten his attention, to see if maybe something had changed, which I think leads us to the second moment in Elijah's life that we want to notice. Look with me, chapter 18, uh, down in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Elijah's gone back to confront him. Ahab said to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have forsaken, you have abandoned the commandments of, of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all to me at Mount Carmel the prophets, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So here we go. Elijah has come back to confront Ahab. Has something changed? No, nothing has changed. Ahab says, you prayed for this drought. You're the troubler of Israel. Completely unaware that his idolatry is what? is bringing this judgment of God, which means that there's about to be a showdown on Mount Carmel between Yahweh and Baal. Here's the second thing Elijah shows us about what happens when we pray. Number two, when we pray, sometimes God moves miraculously. When we pray, sometimes God moves miraculously. Let's keep reading chapter 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and, one, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it, for you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped 
around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep, and he must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on and on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah doesn't mince words here when it comes to the people of Israel. He gets right to the issue. They are limping back and forth between two opinions. They are wavering back and forth between God and between Baal. They are, as James would tell us, double-minded They are like a wave of the sea that is tossed to and fro and driven by the wind, unstable in all their ways. But I can resonate with this double-mindedness. I don't know about you, don't, don't you just find it so hard sometimes to keep your loyalties in check, keep your loyalties from being divided between the world and the Lord? There's this constant temptation to control our life, to get nice things, to build a platform, to earn affection from the world. And so our loyalties end up just divided, not not fully one way, not fully the other, just kind of split. And the reality for us is, is to realize that we're not the masters of our own lives. We don't ultimately have control. And we're at risk of of limping back and forth between two opinions if we do believe that that that's true. But we have to be constantly cultivating our trust in the word of the Lord and our faithfulness to what it says. And sometimes it takes a miracle to get our attention. And Elijah can teach us here. When he talks about prayer, in this passage, in this little section, he says that he is going to call upon the name of the Lord. This is a really common way that people talk about prayer in the Old Testament, calling upon the name of the Lord. Um, When you call upon someone's name, you are calling upon their character. You're calling upon who they are at the core of their being. And God, when you call upon the name of Yahweh, you're asking God, to come through on his promises. You're asking God, who has promised to be faithful to his word and to rescue his people, you're asking him to come through on what he's already promised to do. So listen here in these next couple of verses, starting in verse 30, listen for how Elijah prays. Listen to these, the promise the covenant language. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar that would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And that you have, that I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That's a prayer full of God's promises. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. We keep going. And Elijah then said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed himself down on the ground and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said again, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Whew. After the showdown, Elijah is very concerned with how Ahab is going to respond. You see him run back before Ahab to Jezreel, and he is kind of waiting to see what Ahab is going to do now that the Lord has moved miraculously. Will the king turn from his idolatry? Will Jezebel repent? Will there be nationwide repentance and reform? Is something new gonna happen amongst God's people? These questions set the scene for the third moment in Elijah's life. Let's read on, chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, his wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel 
sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. That would be Mount Sinai. The third thing that we see in Elijah's life about what happens when we pray is that when we pray, sometimes God resets our perspective. Sometimes when we pray, God resets our perspective. And I think it's actually in this moment that we see why James tells us in James 5 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. One moment, he's bold, he's prophetic, he is standing strong for the Lord, calling on God to be faithful to his word. It's no wonder James sets him up as an example. But then in the next moment, he's terrified. He's running for his life. He's having a complete breakdown in the wilderness because his ministry had been a complete failure. After the whole thing at Mount Carmel, nothing was different. Nothing changed. And more than that, Jezebel has made a death threat on his life. So off he goes into the wilderness, and where does he go? He goes to Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where Yahweh established his covenant with Moses as the people of Israel came out of the Exodus. Can you resonate at all with Elijah here? I can. Um, I love the Bible for showing us this part of Elijah's life. I think many of us across the room would say, man, we, we had big goals, big dreams, big hopes for our life. We wanted to make big moves at work. We imagined starting a family and raising kids and had no idea that it, it might be as exhausting as it actually is. Or maybe we find ourselves hoping still for one of these things to be true in our life. Some of us are totally tapped out from, from caring for a, an ailing family member. Maybe some of us have just been going about our life only to realize just recently that, that we have gotten some of the things that we hoped for and we're surprised at how normal and unexciting it feels. 
Elijah is teaching us something here about prayer. He's teaching us that when we find ourselves at these breakdown moments in our life, we can be very honest with the Lord. In his book, Courage to Stand, Russell Moore makes a really beautiful comment about this moment in Elijah's life. He says that in the wilderness, God is doing for Elijah what Elijah had done on Mount Carmel. He's removing the bales. This time he's removing the bales from the prophet's own heart. And that's why Elijah is the model that we need. Getting the climax of the Elijah story right is important because if we don't get it right, it's gonna lead us somewhere that Elijah ultimately doesn't lead. So when we pray, Sometimes God resets our perspective. Sometimes God has to rid us of our own expectations, our own unfulfilled expectations of what life is supposed to be like. And God does this for Elijah in a really sweet way. Let's look in chapter 19, verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave at Mount Horeb and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke it in pieces, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah comes to Mount Horeb and God reminds him of the Exodus events to encourage the discouraged prophet. And God draws near, not to speak, but to invite Elijah to speak. His question, what are you doing here? It's not a rebuke. It's actually an opportunity, an invitation for Elijah to unburden himself. And God responds to Elijah's pain and brokenness in a thin silence with a still, small voice and a low whisper. The Lord draws near to his prophet and tenderly and gently resets his perspective Elijah is not, in fact, the only one left. There are 7,000 in Israel who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal 
And in fact, the Lord has international plans to come through on his word. So sometimes when we pray, God graciously expands our vision. He graciously resets our perspective because for us, it's just so easy to get tunnel vision at times on everything that's wrong in our own lives that we miss God's bigger purpose outside of us and beyond us. Yet when we bring our brokenness, God gently resets our perspective. We have to get the climax of the Elijah story right so that we're not led somewhere else. You might think that the climax of the Elijah story is Mount Carmel, this big showdown with the prophets of Baal. But I wanna suggest that the climax of the Elijah story is right here at Mount Horeb in the wilderness when Elijah is devastated. Because ultimately, this would not be the last time that Elijah stood alongside Moses talking to God himself. In the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus himself has just performed a great and mighty miracle of feeding the 5,000, and he himself goes up on a mountain to pray. And as he is there, his face is altered and his clothes become dazzling white, and two men are with Jesus on the mountain, Moses and Elijah, and they are talking with Jesus about his exodus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You see, the the trajectory of Elijah's story is always leading us to the crucified glory of Jesus Christ on the cross. For followers of Jesus, it's not Mount Carmel, and it's not Mount Horeb, and it's not even the Mount of Transfiguration where God ultimately changes our circumstances. For believers in Jesus, it's not Mount Carmel, and it's not Mount Horeb, and it's not the Mount of Transfiguration where God most miraculously moves. For followers of Jesus, it's not Mount Carmel or Mount Horeb or the Mount of Transfiguration where God ultimately resets our perspective. God does all of those things on a mountain called Calvary where we find a God who took on a nature like ours so that all the promises of God might be fulfilled in Christ. It's on Mount Calvary where God changes our circumstances from death in sin to being made alive in Christ. It's on Mount Calvary where we see the most miraculous move, the most miraculous work of God, not in a show of strength, but in a stunning show of weakness and death. And it's on Mount Calvary where God can ultimately reset our perspective to show us that in the here and now, taking the way of the cross, following the way of Jesus, may lead to suffering and weakness and death here and now. But in the long term, the way of the cross is ultimately the way to the glory of God. And that can be your story too. So is anyone here suffering? Is anyone among us sick? Is anyone rejoicing? What a privilege we have to carry everything to God in prayer. Let us pray, knowing that the example of Elijah is always leading us to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who even now, in his resurrected body, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and Jesus is praying for us, 
for you, for me. He's praying that we might be faithful to follow Jesus, come what may, all the way to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we are weak and weary and burdened and heavy laden. And so we come to you right now in the name of Jesus, praying that you will give us rest for our souls. We're asking you to change our circumstances. We're asking you to move miraculously. And we're asking you to reset our perspective. Would you give us strength to carry on through the next week? In Jesus' name, amen.